In this episode, we talk about Chris Monroe returning to California the first time he was arrested and some of the most profound lessons he learned while he was in federal prison. So where we left off last time was kind of the almost end of your college career. We had not yet hit on your first arrest with it, which actually happens before the true end of your college career. Yes. When's the first time you were arrested? I was arrested uh, in college right before I was getting ready to quit. Uh, I, I caught a battery case, um, sort of real, real, real murky, sort of lots of alcohol, lots of drugs. Uh, it was a heavy night of partying. I was uh, roaming around the dorm. At this point, the whole dorm was just sort of like on fire. Everybody was drinking. Everybody was drugging. Everybody was just loud and obnoxious. And at this time, I had a girlfriend. But, you know, I was also an athlete on the on, on campus. And so, like, I was, uh, I wasn't, I don't want to say, like, sought after. But, like, you know, I, I was an athlete. And so, like, I was uh, hot shot, whatever you want to call it. And uh, during this time where I was, you know, under the influence, I had a... Uh, decided to cheat on my girlfriend and uh i was in the staircase and i was uh making out with this girl this this random girl uh and uh as i was doing that you know a group of people were coming up the staircase and that group of people were really close with my girlfriend and um so they went and told my girlfriend and you know, it didn't happen right away, but maybe an hour later, I, I was in my dorm room and and I uh, was sitting there by myself and uh, a group of people came in my room and and it was uh, with my girlfriend and, and they they like like I remember they all came in my room and shut the door and I was just sort of like, OK, what's up? You guys, you know, really what I was thinking, like, do you guys have some coke? Do you guys are you guys right. here to party? OK. Right. And uh, they shut the door and they just started like interrogating me. And at this point, I was so wasted when I was kissing the girl, I didn't really realize who it was coming up right. the stairs. And uh, so they interrogated me and then they started accusing me. And I, at this point, I'm really big and, uh, you know, I'm fit, I'm strong. And uh, I'm in a tiny dorm room. And uh, at this point, I'm uncomfortable and I want to leave. And they decide to block the door. How many people are we talking Probably three or four, maybe five, Yeah, maybe five in a, okay. in a small little dorm room. And right. uh, so so at this point, I'm screaming, let me out. Nobody wants to let me out. Uh, I'm recognizing that they're friends or they're acquaintances, and I'm recognizing that my girlfriend's there. So as, as I get up, my girlfriend goes in front, and uh, she starts screaming and, and, and pushing on me. And uh, then, like, there's much give and take. And uh, finally, I just... Get, I try to get through all the people and I'm pushing and shoving and I'm, I'm, I'm getting out of the way and I'm opening the door and she goes flying over to the side of the bed and hit and, and falls down and I leave the room and uh, I take off. And so I'm just on the campus by myself trying to blow off some steam. Next thing I know, I'm, I'm walking back to the campus and there's tons of cops. And so uh, they had called the cops and said that I had been violent and that I had put my hands on 
uh, my girlfriend. And they took me to the station and booked me for a battery. And that was my first arrest. When you left the room after you pushed your way out, did you realize she'd been hurt? I had no idea. So you've, you've left, you thought you got out of that bad situation later to find out, hey, the police are waiting for you and they do place you under arrest and you pick up what in Texas would be an assault charge there. It's a battery charge. I imagine so. I, I'm not really good with the, I, yes. <laughs> that's, yes. that's fair. Fair enough. Uh, but essentially what you're talking about is probably a misdemeanor charge of battery, which meant you hurt someone. Yes. Not necessarily that she was bruised and broken, just she was hurt and that can lead to criminal charges. Yes. But that was the first time you were ever arrested. Yes. What ultimately happens with that case? So that case was drug on for a little bit. Uh, shortly thereafter, I decided to leave the U of I. A short period after me getting back to California, I just go full blown cocaine. I mean, to the point where I couldn't even like I had to eat the cocaine because I couldn't snort it anymore. My eyes were swollen shut. Uh, I had to then go back to Idaho, and I believe I spent six days in jail okay. to serve that to serve that out. So at some level, you had already decided Idaho was no longer the place for you. Yes. But this was the final straw, in essence, that made it to where you didn't want to be there and the university didn't want you to be there. Yeah, this was the black eye. This was the quintessential, like, you know, there's no more sweeping anything under the rug. This was that moment where uh, you, you you couldn't squeak by it. It 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 left a stain. And, you know, it uh, there was no there was no cleaning it up. It was it no matter no matter what it was or what it looked like, you know, there was a certain perception now of me and it just it was unrecoverable unrecoverable yep. there much better uh there was no there was no cleaning it up right your then girlfriend was she okay yes and looking back and now realizing that she had been hurt do you regret anything that happened that evening absolutely i mean i regret being i just regret being a jerk right not taking into consideration anybody else's feelings it, it, you know and and that comes along with partying right like the minute you decide to uh, take on drinking past the point of anything social. And then you, you know, you combine that with illicit drugs, you're asking for disaster. Like no matter, you know, no matter who you are, that's really what you're asking for. You're asking for opportunities where, where, where you make it easier for yourself to slip up. And, uh, yeah, I just regret, I, you know, I regret, I, I regret moments like that in my life, but I also am, I also keep them somewhere where I can constantly learn from them. I, you know, I, I don't just, uh, ex I try not to just experience things now. I try to look back and sort of extract something that I can get from it, keep with me, you know, sort of chew the meat, eat the meat, spit out the bones. Right. Because previously you've talked about perception and how drugs altered your perception on life, made you very selfish and everything you just described was very self-centered. The only thing it, that you were seeing in the moment was yourself. Right. I'm in this room. I feel claustrophobic. I don't know why they're here, why they're accusing me of things. I want to get out. I'm too involved in myself to know that someone was hurt. So looking back and saying, I now have a new lens on life. I can learn from my mistakes is important. And there's value in looking back and saying, hey, I did mess up because part of what you're doing is you're helping other people understand, hey, 
this is the lens you're looking through life with now. If you go down this path, you're going to make decisions that you will regret. And I don't want you to have those experiences. Learn from mine. Right. You know, so, so, so I like to call it pay, paying it forward, right? Absolutely. Like, what can I, what can I give you as an individual when I hear you saying, uh, previous recordings or echoes of me and what I used to say, right? Like, so, yeah, so I, I take those opportunities and I use them as, as, as fuel for, for, for fire that can, you know, ultimately and hopefully change somebody's lens or let them switch their lens, what they're looking through and give them an example because there's no substitute for experience. Absolutely. You know, it's one thing for me to tell folks, Hey, if you go down this path, I know as a criminal defense attorney, where this is going to take you, I don't want repeat business from you. I want your life to be different than from when you first met me, but I'm not speaking from my own experience. I'm just speaking from experience of having helped people. Why your story is so compelling, at least to me is you're speaking from experience. You've been through the darkest moments. You've been to places where a lot of people lose hope. And part of your story is about how you made decisions to change and to say, even in this dark place or dark moment, I'm ultimately going to get somewhere that I'm proud of myself. I'm proud of what I've done with my time. And I'm proud of you. I'm proud of the things that you've done and you continue to do. But that's why we're doing this podcast is to tell people about that and tell people there is hope. And you've just got to get to a point where you're willing to see things a little bit differently. Right. A large part of your story is about phenomenal opportunities that you lost over time. In fact, you were recruited or had an opportunity with what was going to be perhaps a new league, the XBA. Yes. Tell us about that. So this was a, this was a, a startup league. It was a chance to get in at the bottom, uh, which is really, you know, an exciting time. Anytime you get a chance to be in at the bottom. So uh, I don't know if you've seen Ice Cube's uh, Big Three. Yeah, it, it it was like that, right? But the concept was a full court deal, and there were players uh, from all over the place, uh, overseas players, one time professional NBA players, uh, and this league was going to start up in the uh, in in the Carolinas, North Carolina, and I was recruited to do that. Uh, you know. But, uh, well, I went, I went, and when I went, uh, at this time, you know, I was, I had started depending on pills, opiates, and, and, and Xanax a lot, and uh, I think I, I think I, I left, I left to go play there, I think I brought like a hundred and some odd Xanax pills with me, you know, brought them to the airport like it was nothing. I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to manage this trip, right? Because at, at this point I'm so dependent on pills, prescription pills that uh, the thought of like, first of all, if, if, if I can't get my hands on them, I won't go. I won't step on the plane. I will not go take advantage of this opportunity if I don't have pills, just period. I, I just wouldn't do it. So I, I uh, got my hands on as many Xanax as I could and grabbed an Aleve bottle because they're sort of similar in shape and, 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 and makeup and, uh, dumped out the Aleve bottle and filled, uh, filled them all up with, uh, Xanax and brought them through the airport and, uh, no one was the wiser. Nope. And, uh, started my XBA trip like that. How long did that last? I think it lasted maybe three months. Maybe three three months, but you know, like once again, uh, this wasn't a, a, a full throated or full hearted effort by me by any means. I think once I, once I arrived there, uh, I was staying with the head coach of the team, 
And uh, there was a big pool and volleyball court in this really big apartment complex that they had. And the first thing I did, I remember I, I went down to the, the pool area and uh, immediately started fishing for people who, you know, who were partying and, uh, you know, I found, found a girl who, who was partying, who liked Xanax and she became my plug. And, you know, next thing you know, it was like, it was just all about how could I get drugs instead of, you know, playing. Like I lived with the coach and found ways to not go to practice. Your ability to manipulate and hide your addiction was pretty profound at that point. Yeah, I, I think I think at this point the addiction wasn't it was it was strong, right? And and uh it would take a seasoned vet to be able to to recognize somebody who who is heavily addicted to drugs you know they they say like if you spot it you can got it or if you spot it you if you got it you can spot it sorry uh you know but but at this time i'm not around people like that i'm around people who are god-fearing men women who are challenging men to be better and so i think that you know like their maybe their inability or their their uh not being around stuff like that really helped prolong me flying under the radar right yeah you talked previously about making a decision when you went to federal prison to swim upstream. Talk to me about what that means at a very practical level. What things were you saying yes to? What things were you saying no to? What did your day-to-day look like? You know, la- landing in federal prison is 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 an unexplainable like, feeling, right? I remember landing there and uh, looking at a group of men and, and just a really big spread of people and, uh, you know, hearing about their time, hearing about what they did last week, hearing about who they were, what they've done. Um, and there was there was this prevailing thought that nothing in the system worked for them. Nothing in this. Oh, they were really just like pessimistic and cynical about anything that anybody was trying to do. And. At this at this point, I'm so thankful, you know, and I and I believe this is a presence of God in my life that I was able to sort of detach myself from the way I used to think, and I was able to observe how people were thinking inside this fence, and you know, I just kept asking myself, why would you expect anything different with the things that you're doing? Everybody was upset that nobody was getting looked at for. The first step act. Everybody was uh, uh, upset that they weren't getting looked at for the second chance act. But then when you asked them what they were doing with their life inside a prison, it was eat, sleep, fight, drink, right? Wash, rinse, repeat. And uh, I, I, I think there was a moment in there where I just got tired of hearing it. I, I wanted to be the difference maker. Everybody told me that it wasn't possible. And now my back is up against the wall. Now, all of a sudden, I realize how how critical every decision in my life is, because this is either going to make or break me. I'm either going to come out of this thing worse if I make it out, or I'm going to come out better than I've ever come out. And I had to make a choice. So that choice was to come out better than I'd ever been. And that required me swimming upstream, right? Not being a part of the norm. Me choosing to 
not kick it with the cool people, me choosing to say no, me choosing to be in bed at 930 because I know that nothing good happens after 930 in prison, me knowing that showing up late without and not having to have an excuse for being in a class is wrong versus me showing up on time with a smile on my face. It was the little things. I had to start learning how to do all the little things well. And um, it was tough. It was tough because there's a lot of peer pressure. There's a lot of uh, influence, right? So if, if, if you're not swimming with us, you're not swimming at all. There was, there was a vendetta, I guess. I guess for me, there was a vendetta uh, in life. When you say vendetta, who did you want to prove who you were to? Me. You me. Yeah. There was this, there was this moment where, uh, I realized that the, the, the decisions I had made in life had ultimately not only even just affected me. It was those moments where my family was coming and visiting me and they were like, they were still just so supportive of me, but I could see the hurt and in their eyes, I could see them thinking, or at least what I thought they were thinking was, how could you do this with so much to give? Right. And in between those visits and hitting that yard, I decided that I was going to finally see what I was made of. And you really only ever really find out who you are or what you're capable of when you decide to get thrown or jump into the fire or swim upstream. Swimming upstream was completely foreign to you at that point in your life. We've talked a little bit about your path that led to federal prison. The reality is you were often, if not always, popular, well-liked. You fell into crowds that you were accepted in and a variety of different crowds, whether they were athletes, musicians, people that liked going clubbing to people who used drugs. All those people accepted you. You were, again, well-liked and popular. It was easy for you to say yes in a lot of different circumstances. And yet now, as you talk about looking at the yard, essentially what you're seeing are men whose lives represent the writing on the wall for yourself if things don't change. And given your size, I'm sure there were lots of people in prison that wanted you to be part of their team, right? Was that true? Sure. Yeah. Sure. I had a couple invites. Exactly. And that's something that most people gravitate towards while they're in prison. You want to find a crowd that you can hang out with. There's safety in numbers, right? But you made a decision not to let that writing on the wall be your story. You talked about some of the small decisions. What were some of the bigger decisions you made that helped you become a success story while you were in prison? I think really what it was, was like, at some point I realized what this level of behavior had like really brought me, you know, like what, what I had really like the debt that I was in, right? Like I had lived this life where I had this card and I could just make bad decision, bad decision, bad decision. And I never saw the bill. I was always just like moving from location to location to location. And I never, the bill never caught up with me until I went to prison. Right. And then it was like, I got this really big bill and I opened it up and I tallied everything that I had accrued in it. And I just looked at it and I was just so appalled that I couldn't see the, the writing on the wall before. And it, it, it sparked something in me. It, it made me want to prove everybody wrong. It made me want to prove 
to myself first and foremost that I wasn't what this piece of paper said I was, right? Because this piece of paper said basically I was a monster. And I had never felt like a monster. I had done some mon monstrous things, but I had never really felt like a monster. So I wanted to really, really, really prove to myself first and foremost, but to everybody in there that they had a shot at life that they still had a shot. And the only way I could do that, like that was something sparked in, in my heart. Like there was something churning in my spirit that wanted to, to be a symbol of hope for people. Uh, and we'll, I guess we could talk a little bit more about that. You know, I believe it's a spiritual thing for me, obviously. But uh, so, so the biggest decisions I made were to be vulnerable and to make the decision to go apply for the number one job uh, go to all the classes, volunteer my help at the medical facility, uh, speak at church. I chose to subject myself to all of the ridicule and all of the what ifs, if I don't become successful in this endeavor that I'm trying, like if I don't get this job and I tell everybody, now nah, I got to go to sleep. I got to go to the library. I got to study. I got to do this because I want this job. If I fail, everybody's going to say, ha ha, I told you, because that's what prison is. Right. Prison is a bunch of ha ha, I told you, instead of, hey, man, I'm proud of you. And I wanted to be that guy who said, it's possible for me. And I, I want to let you know, even if you start to do it, I'm proud of you. So the big decisions for me in prison were to be vulnerable. That was probably the biggest decision I made in prison was to be all the way out there and be transparent, be completely vulnerable and let everybody know that despite what I'm facing, I'm going to make the best choice I can make day in and day out. There's so many powerful takeaways from what you just shared. A couple that stood out to me is first, you made a decision that that piece of paper, that judgment, that by all accounts shouldn't leave you sitting here with me today. It should still have you in federal prison. Right. That piece of paper did not define you. You made a decision that that piece of paper didn't define you. You made a decision that your acts prior to that, that led to the piece of paper didn't define you. That was remarkable. And to me, a huge takeaway, hopefully for our listeners. The second one was what you decided to do in that moment. So many people look at that piece of paper and how many years in the federal system, how many months, because they put it in these yeah. big numbers, you're supposed to serve. So many people look at that and lose hope completely, right? Which is why it's so easy to say, ha ha, I told you so, right? And that's why it's such a common theme. But you chose in that moment to say, I've found hope to do this for myself, to show everyone I can against all odds, and to give like-minded people hope to say that they can do it. And many of my listeners are going to be people who are looking at potentially federal sentences that are very long because that's the nature of the federal system. Your story, therefore, to me, is so compelling for people in those positions. And hopefully these podcasts get played in prison. I know someone who's in charge of a lot of prison podcasts and making that available to people. And I want people in prison to hear your story, to say, here I am now, but Chris did it. And Chris gives me hope that I can do it. Thank you. Yeah, I yeah. appreciate it a yeah. lot. 
Thank you for listening. Obviously, this is a very heartfelt story for Chris Monroe, and we hope it's meaningful. If you found value in this podcast, be sure to like and subscribe. It'll really help other folks who are in similar situations find this content, and we hope that it blesses them as well.